Uh, we're going to continue in The Great Escape. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of an update. This is our walk through the book of Exodus today. We're in Exodus chapter number 20. Um, we're going to be in Exodus 2014. We're focused on the seventh commandment. But last week in the third part of our message, the commandments of God, we looked at the sixth commandment, which was thou shalt not kill. We saw that this commandment was pertaining to human life and the, sh and the shedding of innocent blood. Through our study, we saw how valuable each human life is to God and, we, how, we, and how we should compassionately care for and protect all of humanity. This week, as we pick up on the seventh commandment, we will delve into one that can not only reap incredible destruction in human relationships, but also deeply affect the relationship between God and his church as we continue in the commandments of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you, God, for the opportunity you've given us to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of the word of God. Thank you for the values, God, that you teach us and that you implant in our hearts, God, that we might live a life that's pleasing to you. And God, as imperfect beings, we are constantly stumbling and taking missteps. Thank you for the grace that you offer to us. God, do a work in us today. Help us to receive from you what you have. And Lord, I know that I have spoken or I have prayed and asking you to speak to me throughout this week. And Lord, I know that you have, and I'm asking now that you would speak through me. Uh, Lord, that this not be a human message, but this be one directly from you. God, empty me of self and of sin, and Lord, use me as a vessel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In review, we need to remember that the Ten Commandments, which were given instructionally for living, yes, but there is a much greater and eternal purpose, which was to reveal the fact that every single person Every single one of us deals with and, and lives with the same failing, which is sin. Romans 3.10 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.12, notice where he goes back and he says, there is none righteous. And you go, just in case you thought of somebody that might be righteous, he goes, no, not one. Then in Romans 3.12, it says, they are all gone out of the way, meaning they've walked away from God. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. Again, he says, no, not one. One. Romans 3.20 gives us a revelation of what the, what the actual law was for. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified, because none of us can keep the law. He says, in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all struggling with the same issue. We're imperfect beings. We make mistakes. We misstep. We fail God on a regular basis. The law is the mirror that God uses to reveal our sin to us. He reveals our lost condition. That is the purpose of the law and a larger, larger for a larger purpose. Exodus 20, 14, it says this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment. In order to understand adultery, what we have to first do is look at marriage. Okay? The world's definition of marriage is this, the legally or formally recognized union of two people as partners in a binding personal relationship. So from the world's perspective, marriage is a legal contract, more or less is what it's saying. Now let's look at it kind of from God's perspective as opposed to the world's perspective. Now when I perform a wedding, there's always going to be a scripture that you're going to hear in every single wedding, every single wedding. And it's this edict that Jesus gives in Matthew 19. Listen to what our Savior says about this union in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He says, and he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Okay, little side note here. Even though there is great discrepancy and there's great conflict and all kinds of, of dispute in our culture today, guess what? There are only 
two genders, right? They were established by God. Those two genders were established by God. And guess what? God is the one that determines what our gender is, not what we feel. That is the reality of things. These, these things, God makes no mistakes, right? And that's for free. That's not part of our message, but I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, verse number five, he says this, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. This is talking and speaking about physical intimacy, the two becoming one flesh. Verse 6, wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, notice this is a union by God, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That terminology means not man nor woman. No human being bring an end to the marriage. God is saying that through their actions, neither husband nor wife should bring an end to the marriage. So we can clearly see that God intends for marriage to be a lifelong commitment. That's God's design of marriage. Now, no one who gets married ever goes into it thinking, this isn't going to work. But whatever, we'll give it a shot, right? <laughs> Does anybody do that? No, man. One of the most optimistic days in our lives is that day where, man, you know what? This is the day. She's going to come down that aisle. We're going to be married. It's going to be bliss and perfection. You know, the, exactly the storybook wedding. That's what this is going to be. And you know, from here on out, we're just going to glide and joy. And there'll be rainbows every morning and birds chirping outside the windows. And I'm going to bring her coffee every day. And we're going to have breakfast in bed. It's going to be amazing. There, yeah. <laughs> they are dreaming, exactly. Because guess what? Life is a little different than that, isn't it? Yeah, life's a little bit different than that. Life gets involved, and sometimes it throws us off, right? There are a few things that people are more optimistic about than marriage. But statistically speaking, as of 2018, this is the estimates, 41% of first marriages end in divorce. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. Yet, people are still incredibly optimistic, even though the odds are against them. You know why? Because on that day, we're thinking, well, our love is special. Our relationship is unique. We're almost untouchable. And see, it's that sense of pride is dangerous. Because that problem is that invulnerability that we think we have, in fact, makes us vulnerable. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh to and fro, seeking, to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. Understand, he's not hunting you per se. He's hunting your relationship. And we'll look into that a little bit further as we go. Look at this in Malachi 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, it says yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee. A witness is someone who certifies or ratifies an agreement, okay? And the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. He says, look, this, your wife, why are you treating her poorly? Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? A covenant is a promise, a promise which is made, a marriage covenant, which is witnessed by God. Verse 15, and did not he make one? Did not God make you one? You were two, two twain made one. He says, look, did he not make you one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit, and wherefore one? He says, why aren't you one? That he might seek a godly seed. He's like, why isn't your focus upon having a godly family, about building and developing something for the Lord? Therefore, take heed to your spirit. He says, look in yourself. Let none deal treacherously against the wife of thy youth. He says, be careful of the way you treat her. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. That term putting away in the Bible talks about divorce. That's talking about divorce. It says, God hates divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment. 
what he's saying in that, he says, your marriage garment that you wear, you have this profession, you have this life that you're living a falsehood. You're letting this garment show this happy marriage, but in reality, it's not happy. And you're living a lie. Be careful not to live a lie, not to hide, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and that ye deal not treacherously. There's a, there's a, a, a standard of behavior that God expects. So we see here that God is the witness of marriage, the marriage covenant. God is the one that makes man, woman, uh, man, a man and woman, uh, husband and wife. We see that there's this behavior standard that is to be maintained in the relationship, and that God has an expectation for it. What does this behavior look like? Ephesians 4.32. This, this scripture is written to the church as a whole. It's written to all Christians as we work as a body. But I want you to understand, if there's anyone in the body of Christ that deserves to have the exemplary a, a, a treatment or deserves these things, it should be your spouse. It says here in Ephesians 4.32, and be ye kind one to another. How many of us are guilty of sometimes not being kind? Yeah, sometimes we're kinder to strangers than we are to our spouse, amazingly. We're to be tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And notice this, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. One of the most important words you're going to find in the Bible is that little word, as. That little word, as. God's given you an example. Every time he does that, he's given you an example, a picture, a picture of it. Because he says, you're to be all these things as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. After all, our spouse is our closest human companion on earth. So they, above anyone else, deserve this type of treatment. If they are not our closest companion on earth, guess what? There's a problem. Because the Bible says that these, those two are to become one. If there's anyone else on this planet you're closer to than them, there is a problem. A truly successful marriage is a picture of unity. And choosing to marry our spouse, guess what? We accepted a mission. God commissioned us. He gave us a mission and assigned it to us. Look in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So God gave them a mission. He gave them something to accomplish. The man was first, then God created man or woman from the man. Their mission was to be fruitful, to multiply, and to have dominion over the planet. How do they accomplish this? By guess what? Being a team. They have got to be unified. This is absolutely key. Unity is the key to success. When a man and a woman share their DNA through intimacy, guess what the natural result is? A child. And if two become one flesh, there's no greater personification of that than a child that is formed from both DNA of the family. The two actually becoming one flesh is the fulfillment of the mission. The man cannot accomplish it on his own, so God brought woman. Guess what? That is a man with a womb. That's what it is. She's exactly the same. The only difference between us is, guess what? She has a womb. So here, the woman is brought. She was created so that she could support the mission, right? So that it could be accomplished. Because without her, it's an impossibility. By his, on his own, it's an impossibility. So she was born. Here's the mission that God gave man. And here's the woman. She's created, guess what? And the word submission. Sub means under. Mission means they're in the same team. Submission is not controlling someone. Submission is understanding the fact that we work together to accomplish a mission. The, world, the word submission has been twisted and turned into a mess in the world today. And that's not what it means. It's in support of a mission. 
But look at this. Ephesians 5, 22 through 27 talks about that very principle. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 27. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, notice this little word, as unto the Lord. The way we submit ourselves to our husbands is not through him going, look, you'll do what I tell you. It's the same love that we have for Christ. When I came to the Lord, man, I came lovingly before him. I said, God, you know what? You are deserving of my honor, of my reverence, and in thanks, God, I submit my life to you because I trust you and because I love you, and I want that union with you. Then it says here, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as, look at this, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Notice this, he switches to the men. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Right? That is a sacrificial love. That means that she goes above everything else. Ladies, do I get some support on that one? That's it, huh? Fine. <laughs> Whatever. I'll just go on my own. That's in verse number 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Sanctify means set apart, man. Make her special. Make her special. She should feel like she's the most important person in the world. And you know what? She is to be. Outside of God, your relationship with your wife should be A number one. And notice that last part says, with the washing of water by the word. You're to cleanse it. You're to cleanse her. You're supposed to help her in her development and understanding of who God is. That's our role. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Right? So a husband listening, as a husband's listening to this message, we need to take note that it's our primary job is to provide our wives with love and biblical teaching in order to help her to become the very best Christian that she can become. And if we do not have the spiritual understanding or the spiritual development to do that at this point in time, we need to get on it. Because guess what? God will hold us responsibility to lead our homes. And we're supposed to be a spiritual leader. As I'm supposed to lead this church, you're supposed to lead your family. You should be the spiritual example in your home. If you're not, change it today. Start growing. Get into discipleship, whatever you need to do, and we will help you in that. And wives, in order for this to take place, you have to be willing to submit to his leadership, allowing him to lead. And herein does the problem lie. This is the issue. Because the one's like, look, I'm going to lead. And the husband's like, well, I'm trying to lead. And I'm trying to be this leader. But she's like, well, I don't want you. And it's this whole struggle. And now what we have is a power struggle back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But God established this and said, look, this is the way it functions. If you'll do it my way, guess what? It's going to work like butter. It's going to be awesome. Or you can try it your way and see how it works out. Who has ever struggled in your relationship with a power struggle? Right? Be honest. My wife's hands up. Yes, absolutely. Right? We all have. Right? If we'll do it God's way, we'll be amazed how things work work out. Look at what Paul says about a marriage relationship in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. It says, the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. But it doesn't stop there. And likewise, also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. In our marriage relationship, our spouse should take priority over ourselves. This is key. This is key. Outside of God, our spouse should be our absolute top priority. And I'm going to give you an example. Whenever my wife and I first got married, we were not saved. We had young kids. When we got saved in 2001, my life got turned upside down. God got a hold of my heart and turned me completely around. I had no understanding of who God was. I had no understanding. I'd never been in church my entire life. I'd never seen a Bible up close. The night I got saved was the first time I ever heard the gospel. My wife had been raised Catholic. That was her background. So she had an understanding of religion, but not a relationship with God. 
And God got a hold of me, man. And I mean, I fell in love with him and I love my wife and I love my kids. But what happened with me was I was in a church that taught a lot about uh, standards or actions or attitudes, a lot of things about the outside appearance, right? So I was trained that if you really love God, you pour time and energy into ministry. You will come in early and you stay late. You do the very best that you can. You set an example for everybody else. He should be priority one in your life. True, God should be priority one in my life. But what happens is ministry is like work, right? If I put my work over my family, I'm hurting my family. And what happened with me for year after year after year after year after year, I poured myself into ministry. My wife's only day off was Saturdays. And guess what? On Saturdays, we did bus visitation. And guess what? I would leave early in the morning. And I'd be at bus visitation. And the more committed I got, guess what? The later I stayed. And she'd say, honey, what time do you think we'll be home? I'd be like, oh, it should be like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And boy, I'd get there on the bus route, start talking to somebody, start getting into it, man. I'm out there in the, in the community. I'm knocking on doors. I'm in the inner city in the hood of Charlotte, and I'm dealing with gangbangers and all the stuff like that. Man, I look up, and I'm like, dude, it's 5.15. Wow. Yeah, I'm on the way. How disrespectful. Right? And what happened was because I put that priority above her, she got isolated and felt alone. And guess what it did to our relationship? Almost destroyed it. Because you know what my job was to do? To make her feel loved, to be a spiritual leader. And I thought by doing things that I was going to fix that, that I was doing the right thing. I was doing a good thing, but I wasn't doing the best thing. We've got to be careful, husbands. Your wife should be a priority in your life. And guess what? If you don't make her a priority, there will be someone out there who is willing to do so. And that's a dangerous place to be. The result of not keeping our spouse's happiness above our own and shifting into selfishness is something we like to call the what about me disease, right? We start looking at ourselves. It's this personal dissatisfaction that is the root cause of virtually every disagreement, argument, and indiscretion that takes place in marriage. And it is at this point that the devil will try his very best to put distance between us and our spouse. That's where he'll find a way. And he'll use that sense of dissatisfaction and that what about me that we're struggling with and that sense of selfishness. Boy, he will play upon that. You see, his ultimate goal is not to destroy your marriage. He really does not care about you. You're irrelevant. His whole thing is to discredit God. Because remember who ratified the agreement. God, right? And says, what God hath put together, let no man put us under. And God says, well, if I can use them to destroy this thing, boy, I gives a black eye to God. And those people that are looking to this marriage and going, you know, oh, they're godly folks. Those are Christians. Guys, I'm telling you what, just as many Christians get divorced as anybody else. Amen. Notice this in John 10.10. In, uh, John it says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. And I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is saying this himself. Notice this. He wants to steal your happiness. He wants to kill your love for one, one another. And he wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. But what does God say? But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. There is an option that is so wonderful and so beautiful. But the problem is we get caught up in this issues. We think about ourselves. See, when we allow the devil to get his way and lure us into a desire of self-satisfaction, this desire for this lust for something more, we're headed for imminent destruction. There is no place for selfishness in marriage. There is no place for it. That is not the design. 
In fact, the vows that we made, the promises that we made to each other are the exact opposite of that. We, we, I will love you, and I will honor you, and I will cherish you till death do us part. I'm going to make you my top priority. That's what we said on that day. And then life gets in the way. And we start looking at ourselves going, you know what? This isn't fair. Adultery is defined as a voluntary sexual affair between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. And Hebrews 13, 4 says this, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. This is important, guys. Sexual uh, interaction, sexuality is something beautiful that God created. It's created for marriage. But you know what? Where it is this beautiful thing that can be, if it's used and done properly, that can be the most amazing and fulfilling thing in the world. It is one of the the most, if not the most destructive force on this planet. Pornography has destroyed millions of people. Extramarital affairs have destroyed millions of people. Premarital sex has destroyed millions of people. There are women in this room today that made a bad choice as a young woman and gave away something that was set aside for their husbands, and they live with that regret. And there are husbands that went out searching for this as a conquest, and they distorted what God created, which was so beautiful, and they turned it into a weapon. It's so sad. But unfortunately, our culture celebrates it today. Our culture celebrates it, man. There are shows just about mistresses and about extramarital affairs, and it becomes celebrated in our culture. Adultery does not start with the act. In fact, it is the end result of a series of ungodly decisions. Adultery begins in the mind. This is where it starts. Matthew 5, 28, look what Jesus said. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Lust is a desire for something more than we have. That's all that means. If we lust, we want something more than we have. It is a very, the very picture of selfishness. And this takes, this takes us back to that dangerous place, that sense of dissatisfaction. But what about me? What about me? What about me? John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but he is of the world. We all know King David, right? Remember, remember who King David is? 2 Samuel, verses, uh, chapters 11 and 12, you can look at David's story. And what we find is David, here's a, guy, a man after God's own heart. And what happens is he's supposed to go to war, and he decides not to. He's not where he's supposed to be. He decides to stay home. And he goes up on the rooftop, and when he's on the rooftop, he looks across to another rooftop. And he sees, va, 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 boom, there's a woman out there taking a shower. And he's like, wow, check it out. And he looks, and then he lingers, and then he lusts. And he has a choice. He can look away, but he doesn't. Then he lingers. He could look away. Then he says, he goes to one of the servants. He says, hey, 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 yeah, I don't know what's going on, but you need to get her over here. And the servant goes, you know, isn't that Uriah's wife? And he goes, Uriah, oh, man. Uriah, before David was king, when David was literally hiding in caves, and he had these mighty men of valor that would do anything for them or lay their lives down for him, that was Uriah. He was one of those guys, one of his closest confidants, one of his closest men. And he said, you know what? Bring her anyway. And he did. And he laid with her. And guess what? She got pregnant. And then he was like, you know what I got to do? I, law- I looked. I lingered. I lusted. Now I got to lie. Call Uriah back from the front. He's in the battle where he's supposed to be. Call him back. And he says, you know what, Uriah, while you're here, why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? Why don't you go you know, have some of that personal time with her? That way you could cover this up. It would be her baby. It would be his baby. And he'd be like, it'd be fine. No problem. No one will ever know. And Uriah goes, you know what, I'm not going to do that. He says, while my men are on the field, he goes, I cannot go and experience the pleasures of being home when my men are out there suffering, so I'll sleep by your door. 
and he tries to get him drunk. He tries all that he can. He said, come on, man, just go, just go. But Uriah's too good of a man. And he says, well, there's only one other option. When Uriah goes back to the front, he sends back a letter, and he says, when Uriah gets in the heat of the battle, when it's as bad as it gets, I want everybody to pull back and leave him alone. And he murdered him. He didn't do it with his own hands, but it was his orders that killed Uriah. And for a year's time, he lives with that lie, and he sells it to everybody. And he's trying to pretend that this is all just fine. And then there comes a day when a prophet named Nathan comes to him. And Nathan tells him a story of a terrible injustice. And David goes, that man right there should face justice. And Nathan says, thou art the man. King, thou art the man. And David's like, oh. And all of a sudden, the lie falls away, and David is crushed. And the, all the results and all the, 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 the consequences of that sin spread out to his family and wreak destruction. And guys, this is what we're talking about. That's adultery. That's adultery. It's that sense of taking ourselves away from what we want to do. And it started here, right? The body never goes anywhere that the mind has not already been first. We've already visualized it. We've already seen it. You've got to stop it then. If you don't stop it then, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. If you're in an emotional affair right now and you're married and you have, you're telling somebody who's not your husband or your wife personal, intimate information, stop it now. It is leading to destruction. If you're in a physical affair, stop it now. God does not want this. It hurts him. You're defying what he designed to be so beautiful. Honor God. Honor God. The battle for our marriage is in our mind. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, your selfishness, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't live for you. Live for me. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, this is the least I can ask of you, for goodness sakes. Have I not died on the cross? Have I not paid the sins, paid for your sin debt? Have I not given you eternal life? Have I not given you everything you have? Have I not given you your spouse? Have I not given you your kids? Have I not given you your home? And all I ask of you is just to live for me, and you can't do that. How do you do it? Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. Don't let the society conform who you are. Don't let it influence the person that you are. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we're going to avoid the pitfalls of our flesh, which guess what? Always wants to sin. Your flesh always wants to sin. We must address our thought life. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. This battle for our marriages, for our families, for our, for, for our Christian lives, it's in our minds. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says this, Be not deceived. Notice this. He warns you up front, be not deceived, because he knows we're so easily tricked. We have, a, we have an, an, an evil, destructive force that's trying to stop us. And guess what? He is a deceiver. He's a liar, the father of liars. He says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to hide anything. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Whatever you plant into your life, guess what? That's what's going to grow in your life. Verse 8, for he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Another reference, God gives a gardening reference here, something we can relate to. Remember, he's always using things in the world to teach us. Four things he wants us to understand. Whatever we sow, guess what? We will ultimately reap. If I plant a peach pit in the ground, I'm not going to get an apple tree. I'm going to get a peach tree. Well, no with me, I'll get a dead plant. But anyway, <laughs> I'm not good at that stuff. <laughs> but if it's done right, you should have a peach tree. We will reap more than we sow, right? 
You plant one peach seed. You don't get back one peach. You get back multiple peaches, right? So what you sow, you're going to get more back. Third thing, there is a delay between sowing and reaping. We can be in the midst of sin and go, look, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. No one knows. I'm living this secret. David, for a year's time, is going, nah, no problem. I got away with it. Nobody even knows. And guess what? There's always going to be a reaping. There is a delay, but that reaping is going to come. There will always be a reaping. Number four, God is not mocked. And looking at adultery, we can see that it has the, that it and the subsequent destruction that it brings to a marriage as a result of sowing to the flesh. This sowing always starts in the mind. So adultery is the physical manifestation of mental unfaithfulness. Mental unfaithfulness. Now, if we look at this, right, the unfaithful breaks, this unfaithfulness breaks the covenant between a spouse and absolutely, but at the same time, guess what? It breaks that covenant with God. It attacks not only our spouse, but it attacks God at the same time. And that's what the devil's trying to do. The destruction of your marriage is his victory. Not because he wants to hurt you. He really doesn't care about you. And the thing is, if you're in a relationship with somebody who's outside of your marriage, guess what? They don't really care about you. If they did, they'd say, work on your marriage. Talk to your spouse. Communicate what you're going through. I should not be the one you're sharing this stuff with. Be willing to tell them the truth. Deal with it. Be truthful with them. Help them to understand where you're coming from. The sewing starts in the mind. Now let's look at this from a doctrinal standpoint, okay? From a doctrinal standpoint, more of a prophetic standpoint. How, what's God trying to teach us on a larger scale, okay? As we've discussed in the past, God uses examples from our physical world that we can relate to in order to teach us larger spiritual concepts. In the Ephesians verses that we looked at earlier, right? God gave us a little glimpse of that as we heard those as, when he said as, 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 about his relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, verses 24 and 25, which we looked at, he says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So he gives us a picture here, right? Our relationship with our spouse should be modeled after the relationship of Jesus Christ with the church. That same kind of love that he has. Now we go a little further in Ephesians 5, 5 verses 31 through 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Verse number 32. This is a great mystery, okay? God's telling us right here. He says, there's something bigger. I'm teaching you right now. This is a great mystery. Notice what he just gave us. He gave us his example. He says that, that, that above that, the man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife. He says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he says, what verse 31 is saying to you is actually... Here, it's talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about this faithfulness, Christ and the church. So Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6 is this. For thy maker is thine husband, talking to us. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman. Right? He's given us a picture here. He's saying, look, this is just like a marriage relationship. Forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused. He said, look, you're an unfaithful, you're an undeserving wife, but guess what? I still called you. Our relationship with God was established through his love for us. Guess what? When he was on the cross, he proposed to us. The Bible says that he offered a gift, the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The greatest, most beautiful ring he could have possibly offered from that cross. With love in his eyes, he offers it to the world. And when you and I receive that gift, guess what? We become his bride. We have now a covenant with God, a relationship 
with God, a personal walk with God. It changes everything. As the church, we should be one with our Lord and totally committed to Him. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 16. It says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As children of God, guess what? We know exactly what God feels about sin. We don't have doubts and questions about that. Guess what we also know? We understand his desire for us to live holy, to be righteous. We understand his mind. He's told us exactly what his expectations are. Think about this in John 14, 15. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. All right? That's simply saying, look, if you love me, would you just be faithful? Our relationship, you're my bride. Could you just be faithful? No other gods before me. Not worshiping idols. You love me. Reverence me. Put me number one. And understand this. You know why? We love him. 1 John 4, 19. Because he first loved us. Amen. Right? This relationship was not established through us. It was established through him. And that offer was made to the whole world. If you're not a child of God today, you can be. That offer, that offer from the cross is for the whole planet. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The world, every single one of us. Galatians 6 taught us that human beings by choice will either sow into our flesh and fulfill our plans for ourselves, or we will sow into our spirit. If we sow into our spirit, guess what? We're sowing and fulfilling in the, playing into the plans that God has for us. One leads to life everlasting. The other leads to corruption. One is faithful. One is unfaithful. And I leave you with this, James 4, 4 verses 1 through 10. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Notice this verse number four. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. He's addressing the church. He's saying, you unfaithful generation, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You've turned your back on me. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? He says, do you realize that, don't realize that, understand that you have this failing in you, this desire for more than you have, a willing, to, uh, this desire to, for, or uh, this sense of dissatisfaction? But look at this, verse number six, knowing that about us, about us, he says, but he giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. If you're doing those things and you're living in sin, guess what? You're being driven by pride. Pride is the root of all sin. It's when we come to truth. It's when we come to the reality, when we humble ourselves before God and before our spouse or whoever we need to make things right with, that's humility. And then verse number seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You want to get out of what you're in? Guess what? Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist that temptation. Guess what? The devil will flee from you. Look at this. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Here you are trying to live in the world, but at the same time you're trying to live for me. It's not going to work. Verse number 9, be afflicted and mourn and weep. He says, look, let your understanding, he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. What you used to think was a good thing, what you used to laugh about and you were excited about, let it come to the realization that it was wrong. Let it make you sad. Let it break your heart and your joy to heaviness. What you thought was good, what the devil lied to you as a truth, is a lie because it's contrary to God. Lean into him and let him do something great. Look at this, number 10, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Fall down before him. God, I'm wrong. 
What I'm doing is wrong. My thought life is wrong. My attitude is wrong. The way I treat my spouse is wrong. God, I give it to you. I lay myself before you, God, and I give it all to you because I'm unworthy. And what is the last thing he says? And he shall lift you up. We're not the answer. He is. He is the solution. Does God deserve our faithfulness? Yeah. Does our spouse deserve our faithfulness? Yeah. We chose them. God put us into a marriage covenant. So let's ask ourselves, right? Are we faithful? Are we faithful? Or are we guilty on some levels of adultery? I think there are some of us here that could say yes. If we are in our marriage or in our relationship with God, it's time to be honest, to stop deceiving ourselves, and make things right. And guess what? It's never too late. It's never too late because guess what? With God, there are no lost causes. God will take you from the deepest, darkest pit you could possibly imagine, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the deepest, darkest place you can possibly imagine. And in that deep, dark well of despair and depression and wanting to be over, God says, you know what? I am with thee. I am with thee. And I will lift you up. Relationships, whether they be in heaven or on earth, must be established on truth. It's time for transparency as we humble ourselves before the Lord and decide to keep the commandments of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today and, God, the message you've given us, God, uh, about being faithful. God, help us to realize the gravity of the choices that we make. God, we don't just represent ourselves. We represent our spouse. We represent our future spouse. We represent God. Lord, we are to be a picture of Christ and the church. And as a people, we are traditionally unfaithful. Traditionally, we struggle with ourselves and our sense of self-importance. You tell us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow you. Lord, I pray that you help us. God, when we think of the mental picture of what that is, it says deny yourself, take up your cross. It's a picture of Jesus walking up to Golgotha. It's a picture of him bearing the burden of that cross in order to be crucified on that very cross. And God, when we take up our cross, we may have a winner, what it may be, we're hiding a secret that we need to bring to the surface. We've been dishonest. We're living a double life, whatever it is. God, help us to take it upon our shoulders. Help us to carry it up that hill. And Lord, at the very top, help us to climb upon that cross and crucify our flesh. God, help us to give our life to you. Because if we'll do that, God, not only will you free us, but the beautiful thing is you will restore us and you will take us from a broken vessel that's of no use to you and God, you'll make us into something beautiful. As the book of Jeremiah talks about the clay, the potter and the clay. The pot is marred and it says that the potter reshapes it. He centers it back in the middle of the wheel. He puts it in the middle of God. He balances it. He puts pressure on it. And what does he do after the pressure gets it all right in the middle of God? He lifts it up. God, lift us up and help us, God, to be vessels fit for the master's use. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what? Pastor, I can't tell you that I'm a child of God. I don't even necessarily understand what that means. I've been raised in church, or maybe you have experience with God, or you pray, or you believe in God. All those things are great. But having a relationship with God is a totally different thing than having religion. And there are some people sitting here listening to this online or wherever you may be. And I don't know what your situation is or what you're going through, but I know that God has a plan for your life. 
and he wants to do a mighty work. 18 years ago, I was a lost man who thought I'm going to be okay because I'm a nice person because I do good things. And there's no place in the Bible that says good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's a lie. What happens is it comes down to this. Jesus, when he died on the cross, cross, died for the whole world and he offered a gift. That gift we talked about, that marriage, that gift is offered from the cross with love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John in Romans 3.23 says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here today and there's never been a time when you can look back in your life and you go, I called on the Lord by faith and I received him as my savior. I know when it happened. I remember the moment. I went from death unto life and I am a child of God today. If it was something you think happened to you or over, over a period of time you just migrated into, it is not that way. He says you must be born again. There is a distinct moment. Just like there's a birth certificate for your birth, there's the same thing for your spiritual birth. There was a time when you went from lost to being saved. And if you search your heart and you say, I don't have that moment, today can be your day. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a ceremony. It's not something that's going to happen to you. It's a choice that you'll make. The offer's being made from the cross as we speak. He's lovingly reaching out to you saying, you know what? I died for you. I love you. And I want to receive you as my child. If we want to receive that gift and establish that relationship with God, we can do it right now. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. As I said, it's not the words. It's the intention of your heart. If you want to receive Christ, he will receive you. He's ready. The question is, are you? With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your heart and your mind. You talk to God. This is between the two of you. But he's listening to your heart, not the words that you're saying in your mind. Repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am sorry for all that I've done wrong. I understand that I failed you, and I failed myself, and I failed others. I come today realizing the error of my ways. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to pay the price for me from the cross. I ask you, Lord, to come into my heart to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. Help me now, Lord, to be your child through your love, through your grace. God, I trust you. You rose on the third day and proved you were God. And I'm trusting you today for my salvation. God, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.